Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon. Welcome uh, to the 10th episode of Have We Got Planning News For You. Um, thank you all for joining us again, particularly on this baking hot afternoon. I uh, have the joys of a west-facing room with no aircon, so I'm probably going to lose half my body weight and sweat by the end of the next hour. Um, we've got another packed show for you today, including our special topic on land value capture, following on from our discussion about zoning last week. Um, two concepts often being spoken about in the same breath. Um, as always, please do continue to provide um, questions or comments in the Q&A function, not the chat function, though you, you can use that as well if you want to. We hugely welcome the comments, uh, and as always, we'll follow up any points on LinkedIn to the extent you'd like to do so. Um, this is, as you will know by now, a free show. Um, however, we uh, reiterate our weekly encouragement to you to consider making a donation either to the NHS Clap for Carers Just Giving page or to uh, a local charity of your choice. Um, now it's time to introduce the panel um, before we come on to our special guest. So can I ask the regular panellists to say in turn who you are, where you are and what you're drinking this um, sunny evening. And there's two Paul Tuckers this time. This, this, um... <laughs> Good evening. No, there isn't. No, there isn't. <laughs> Good evening. My name is Mary Cook and I'm not having an identity crisis. And I just want to promote, because the theme tonight is Somerset, this amazing brandy, but for reasons that will be obvious given the heat, I'm not going to drink it now. I'm going to stick to my usual gin and tonic. We believe you, Mary. <laughs> Hello, my name is uh, Chris Young, and uh, I am in Chambers. I'm in the marketing suite at number five Chambers. It's from here that I attempt to control the whole of LinkedIn across the Western industry. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Great. You called Craig. Uh, yeah, I too am drinking cider in line with our Somerset theme. Uh, this one's called Bittersweet, and that's how I'm feeling about an inquiry where I'm in a room, uh, presently on my own, but at least I'm in an, in an inquiry. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. And hello, I'm in Lancashire, uh, which is somewhere just north of the equator. Um, I asked my, uh, my my beloved wife to get me some uh, cider, and she seems to think that Thatcher's rosé from Somerset is my choice. <laughs> it matches my, uh, uh, my overall personality wonderfully, you can tell. Uh, it tastes absolutely vile, so I'll probably be drinking coffee. <laughs> Uh, um, I am Sasha White. I am in London. I'm in Hampstead. I've got an appropriate mug all the world's a stage because I've got to say I've been speaking I've been know what it's like to be a worldwide media star today because I've spoken to endless journalists wanting my view on West Ferry so <laughs> Chris are you sucks Chris yet again I've got West Ferry in but I have to in view of where it is 
Sasha, I bet that's how long would it take before you, you couldn't resist the, the W word? You know, um, if this was in America, you'd be on the Saturday night show um, being interviewed as the lawyer who, who nearly brought down the government or may yet bring down the government. Um, instead, you've got an even better gig tonight. Um, so uh, nice work. Well, I, so I, I'm, I'm calling from the furnace that is my home today. Uh, and I'm also drinking cider. <laughs> Don't ever say I'm not a classy guy. Strong this. Um, but still further, in tribute to my lockdown hair and my impeccable music taste, I'm drinking it out of this pint mug, my Bon Jovi, my one of many Bon Jovi pint mugs that uh, I bought uh, at a gig in, in Germany last year. Um, as a concert which I now get uh, targeted for advertising for Lederhosen on Facebook. That's another, another matter altogether. Now... Uh, our very special guest this week is uh, Nigel Jones, um, director of, of Chester's Harcourt, a fellow of the Royal Institution of, of Chartered Surveyors, um, who sat on the RICS panel on, on financial viability and was acted as an assessor on viability for PINs. Nigel, uh, welcome. Uh, we're honoured to have you here. Tell us where you are and what you're drinking this evening. Um, well, thank you all. I am in West Dorset, my home, even though you've been kind enough to celebrate Somerset, which is where I work. <laughs> uh, I am drinking Fernabas Brewery beer from the next door village. And I also have brought for you Dorset Knob Biscuits. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who don't know what a knob is, ooh, there is a knob. That's Dorset Knob. <laughs> yeah. Classy, really classy this show. Yeah, well, uh, some that's people, going to look very different on the transcript than it is. Uh, <laughs> some people would say, no, okay. I agree. It does some have a people would it. say, with the exception of Mary, that there are usually four knobs on the show every week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> are there any Marxists? That's what I want to know. Well, absolutely, absolutely more of that later. Well, as usual, our, our guest interview with Nigel is going to be in the second half of the show. But before that, Nigel will um, obviously be contributing to our discussion on land value capture. And Nigel, of course, please do chip in on anything else uh, beforehand, should you uh, wish to do so. Now, if Sasha has enabled share screen, which is a bit of a wild card, oh, he has, we'll be able to see what um, one of us has been up to this week. So hopefully you'll now see um, uh, Chris. Now, has Chris been at a digital inquiry? Or is he just pretending to be Captain Kirk piloting an imaginary spaceship? <laughs> uh, you decide. Um, and, and what is it about Chris's aroma that means James Corbett Bircher is sitting so far away from him? Uh, more than a few metres. Um, I must say, I, I did ask Chris if I could um, uh, join his inquiry as a member of the public. Um, but funny enough, I'm still waiting on the, on the meeting ID details. Um, yeah. they provided. I can't imagine um, why. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ye of little faith. Now, um, on to the serious stuff. And um, first up, as always, is, is court case or, or perhaps non-case of the week. Um, Sasha, um, the, the consent order everyone's been talking about. Yes, well, this, this is the kind of topic that Chris rolls around in joy when he hears about. This is all about deliverable in the context of the MPPF. And us lawyers kind of get very excited about what deliverable means. And of course, the government in their wisdom sought to define it in the MPPF glossary. And we all thought, well, it's pretty clear what deliverable means. And I'll come back to it. And of course, we had the eternal debate. Was it closed or an open list? Now, in a, most of us have a pretty firm view of 
view of the position and I think most of us fell on the line that we argued it was a closed list. I don't know if any of our practitioners took the view that it wasn't, but I certainly took the view it was a closed list, whether I was appearing for an LPA or a developer. However, what we had was an appeal in January of this year in East Northamptonshire, where Graham Chamberlain took the view quite clearly in reaching the decision to grant consent. And for those of you who are interested, look at paragraph 36, where quite clearly the inspector reaches the view that the list is a closed list and he takes that view based on um, case law we're enforcing this point and that seemed to be established and he concluded that in the light of his scrutiny of the closed list and what was deliverable he took the view that the council was unable to demonstrate a five-year housing land supply. Permission was granted on appeal as I say in January and what happened is East Northamptonshire took a 288 to seek to quash the decision and one of their grounds was that the inspector had erred in law in concluding that the list was closed. Now of course most of us would take the view that the Secretary of State for Housing Communities and Local Government would have fought it. However, before it got to court, the Secretary of State instructed his solicitors to accept the allegation that effectively the inspector had heard. And what is very important here that what is concluded is that the proper interpretation of the list is that it is not a closed list. And it's said in terms, what is said by the Secretary of State in the consent order is the proper interpretation of the definition is that any site which can be shown to be available now offer a suitable location for development now and be achievable with a realistic prospect that housing will be delivered on the site will meet the definition and that the examples given in categories A and B are not exhaustive of all the categories of site which are capable of meeting that definition. Whether a site does or does not meet the definition is a matter of planning judgment on the evidence available. Well, that is the most categoric and clear expression that the correct way to look at the glossary is to assume it is not a closed list. Mm. In summary, where we are now is clearly, for those of us who are involved in housing appeals coming forward, we need to take that assumption on board that the correct interpretation is that it is effectively capable of being an open list. So you look at category A, category B, and you can add other categories of housing sites that you can credibly argue for within the first limb of the glossary. So that that is the interesting High Court case, which was not, so to speak. Chris, your take on it? Yes, well, uh, as you know, I can talk about this forever, uh, but I'll try <laughs> and do it in two minutes, okay? Um, a gentleman uh, by the name of Paul Tucker and I had a, an ongoing discussion about this for three years, uh, which obviously resulted in some litigation in, in uh, a place I believe known as East Riding. And um, uh, the fact is that, uh, Paul argued uh, for a nice broad definition and uh, I didn't and um, uh, eventually after we trawled through the courts Paul came out and won. Only I really think I won because the definition was changed by the government in the next version of the MPPF. That's my version of it um, and we had real clarity because we had the A and the B category. This I'm afraid just goes to add more confusion to what was a relatively straightforward position. Mm. I am very surprised in the Secretary of State's position. I thought the whole purpose of the two lists was to make it absolutely clear. But, you know, the Secretary of State argued vociferously in the St. Modwin case that the definition was very clear. The court accepted that. 
and then the definition was changed afterwards. So when we get the next version of the MPPF, don't be surprised if we see another version. My own view is the problem around this issue is in the first sentence of the definition of deliverable. I think that's where the difficulty is. That's a hangover from the 2012 mm. definition. Mm. Get rid of that, make the two categories closed, and then we just stop debating it. But, you know, um, hang on a minute, I'm a lawyer. Why am I saying to stop debating it? No, thank you very much for the court for making yet more discussion at endless inquiries. Charlie, can I just can I just make a comment? I'm slightly worried that Chris has turned up at the wrong show. That he thinks this is not the nine o'clock news. Very good impersonation of Michael Burke this evening. Yeah. <laughs> he's also um, I mean, characteristically missed out the most important bit, which is a consent order. No matter what the Secretary of State thinks, exactly. is binding. So we're still able to argue it. We can still I mean, get to the Court of Appeal, Chris. Yeah, I know we can. I mean, that's a good point. But yeah. if you're an inspector sat in an inquiry or sat on a screen, mm -hmm. what, what are you going to do? The Secretary of State has told you what he thinks it is. So, yeah, look, I, I'll see you back in the Court of Appeal three yeah. years' time. I'm all for that gig. But for the moment, you're going to struggle to persuade an inspector to ignore, ignore the Secretary of State's version. Mm. I, I think that's right in, in practice, Chris, but it is unsatisfactory that um, this issue has been purportedly resolved by a consent order without argument. And really, um, what the Secretary of State makes of his own policy shouldn't really count. The whole point of the Tesco and Dundee judgment is it's not for policymakers to say what, what their policy meant. It's a question of objective interpretation. Um, so there's a number of unsatisfactory things about this and also the fact there are other decisions going the other way. Um, so I'm going to carry on arguing it's closed with this. Um, I should say on East Riding of Yorkshire, just Stephen, Stephen Hunt is watching, it, a picture of East Riding of Yorkshire right in front of my computer. That's how much my love for that fine part of the country is. I have um, no idea where that is. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, PIN's decision of the week. Um, and Paul, you're going to tell us about something um, in your part of the country. Yeah, Street. absolutely. This is... So, uh, this is a decision in Yorkshire, so uh, if it's got a Yorkshire uh, element to it, I'm happy to talk about it until the cows come home. Um, so this is a proposal uh, uh, for 250 houses um, just north of Barnsley, next to a, a settlement called Royston, uh, part of an allocated site. Uh, it was refused uh, by Barnsley NBC and was heading off to appeal uh, due to be heard at inquiry in the week of lockdown. Um, understandably, with absolutely no idea how long lockdown was going to be, uh, no idea as to uh, what what would happen, pins suspending and adjourning everything off uh, for understandable reasons back in the middle of March, the decision was taken by both parties, let's adjourn it all off and let's go to written reps. Um, completely understandably in relation to that, for reasons that I'll come back to, I think with the benefit of hindsight that may have been problematical uh, and certainly when you read the inspectors, uh, decision letter, I think uh, it would have strongly benefited for some sort of debate. Um, if you start off, very often when I read a decision letter, I start off at the end and read the conclusion. So I've got an idea as to where the, the decision letter is going. Then I look at the main issues. Then I read the body of the document. When I looked at this, this appeal decision, it's quite clear. Um, uh, the conclusions tell me that there's a, a dismissal on the grounds that highway safety hasn't been proven. Uh, that there's a shortfall in terms of the contribution for education provision to a, a school and it also tells me that the master plan which is part and parcel of the policy that this is allocated under um, uh, uh, needs to come first it needs to be adopted first 
Uh, when I look at the main issues, that seems to correspond. Uh, the middle bit is the confusing bit and is really quite impenetrable in places. Um, this is one where I feel enormously sorry for the unsuccessful appellant. Um, that's because they seem to do everything possible to try and get their consent. Um, they sought to contribute towards uh, uh, figures for highways which weren't specified by the authority. There was no master plan for a number of, number of years before the appeal. They appeal and suddenly a master plan is produced and they appear to comply with it. Uh, because there's no real understanding in terms of education, they throw an awful lot of money at highways. The inspector concludes in excess of, uh, of uh, uh, the amount of money that was necessary in relation to highways. Um, but by contributing the money to highways, they didn't then contribute the same amount of money that might have been expected on a proportionate basis to education. Um, they, they sought to do almost everything you could possibly do behind the scenes to resolve matters. Um, the appellants won in relation to a large number of the highways issues. They got the inspector to say compliance with paragraph 108 and 109 of MPPF. Uh, they won on Great Crested Newts, they won on living conditions, they won on, the, um, on a number of the uh, different elements, but they lost on master plan and they didn't prove highway safety. Uh, as I say, I'm not entirely clear from reading the decision letter quite how they lost on highway safety because it's all over the shop. And indeed, there's at least parts of the inspector's decision for, and directed towards uh, paragraph 40, where the inspector is plainly struggling with the amount of detail that was presented mm -hmm. before her. Um, I think that this, this case tells me two things. The first thing is that oral events, hearings, inquiries are really important to get to the mm -hmm. bottom of complex issues of this nature. I don't criticize anybody for converting this to written reps because of the timing of it, but I think with the benefit of hindsight, the inspector perhaps should have taken pause and gone, if I can't say that this is proven, because I don't really get where we're going with all these highway elements, I should adjourn this off and hear representations on it. Um, and then the second element is this notion of master plans. It, I, I've done dozens and dozens of local plan examinations on, on both sides, and it's always struck me as, in, as a cop-out on forward planning departments and inspectors' basis to say, you can have permission pursuant to this allocation, providing you have a master plan. And the master plan is all for motherhood and apple pie, and everybody adjourns it off, and you're all pleased to have your allocation. And then the authority doesn't produce a master plan for months, years, and years until you force the point. I've had that in a number of instances acting for both sides of the fence and it's a cop-out and it really should be something that inspectors grapple with and in this instance I feel enormously sorry for the um, for the unsuccessful appellants. Mary. Harry. Well uh, my take on it is is slightly different actually uh, having read it a second time round. Um, the local plan was adopted in January 2019. The following month uh, Bellway made the application uh, I note that uh, construction on this site had already started uh, elsewhere by another house builder. Um, and so it's kind of not surprising that uh, perhaps they, they made the planning application. But I'm just going to pick up in particular on the problem with the primary school, because um, there was a need for a primary school, but the need for the primary school wasn't simply as a result of the allocation of 750 homes. There was an, also a need for the primary school because of an existing deficiency. And although in Bellways 106 agreement, they paid the usual contributions for school places, I don't think they committed to paying in their signed 106 obligation, an element in respect of the land cost. And there was an ad another added complication that even if they had uh, decided to pay for all that land because the school wasn't required simply for the 750 
but it was required for some of the uh, some pre-existing issue. The inspector wasn't wasn't really convinced that there was a world in which uh, Bellway could have made a SIL compliant contribution for both the school places and the cost of the land. And I think that just illustrates the dangers of one site uh, or, or one uh, landowner or house builder coming forward before there has been some kind of either policy uh, apportionment or as between uh, landowners, uh, there has been a contractual uh, arrangement. And I say that looking very carefully at lovely Chris and our special guest, because this, this sort of issue slightly touches upon uh, a place called Cranbrook, where we are discussing in a local plan that hopefully one day will be resumed, uh, not dissimilar issues. <laughs> I can only say no comment to that. <laughs> See how scary it is when Mary approaches the camera and looks over at us. That really is frightening. Well, can I say, I want to say, so I'm going to say something in sympathy with the inspector. I'm sorry, but to, to ask someone to determine an application of this scale of magnitude for written red is simply nuts. I'm sorry, it is. The issues to basically determine the issues and the complexity required, whatever the situation is with COVID, that is incredibly difficult. And I think it was a slight hospital pass to an inspector to manage to get to grips with all the issues in that, in that mode of determination. Agreed. Agreed, agreed. And let's hope PINs might take some lessons from this. And one lesson might be that they should allow inspectors who uh, are given written reps to, to take a more flexible approach and call for a video conference hearing in order to air uh, issues which need to be properly aired. Yeah, yeah. I, to, I would echo yeah. that and I have to say sitting in inquiry now today the inspector asked for legal submissions among, amongst other things the St Modwin case that the other side rely upon uh, you know these are not simple things the idea that this should be dealt with by way of written reps leaving aside the circumstances I couldn't agree more. Completely inappropriate. Can I also respond to Mary on the point about land cost? Mm -hmm. Land cost for a school. The land cost for a school is an extremely difficult subject because, per se, and obviously I don't know the individual circumstances here, but values of land for school isn't easy because, in theory, there's no value. Mm. Can I just throw in, Charlie? Um, I, I think. Uh, four of the five of us uh, need to apologize to our audience this week because we were late with regard to um, the social media and we didn't put the reference uh, of this appeal decision uh, onto the website so we'll make sure that's on uh, in the next 24 hours and frankly that's because uh, our linkedin genius was doing something else mm. and, Sorry. and also paul you make a good point we'll also try and put the consent order on a link to our linkedin page as well for those that want to see the east northampton shirt consent order. I, I can't let your comment drop, Chris, that the other side were relying on, on St Modwin. Uh, if ever I have the, the misfortune to be against uh, uh, your capable good self, I think I'd have to gratuitously rely on it at every stage of the inquiry. <laughs> yes, and I know you would. I, I would, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now, really sorry for any inspector who has to adjudicate upon that matter. <laughs> on to our special topic. Um, uh, land value capture. What is it uh, and should we implement it? And uh, Mary, you're going to introduce this subject. So, land value capture. 
Um, should the increase in value of land allocated for development or where planning permission is granted be shared between just a limited few, i.e. the landowner uh, and the developer, or should the public get a slice of the pie? That seems to be the, um, the sort of question, the, uh, the words land value capture in gender. But I think that question is built upon a, a, upon a false premise because in order to unlock the higher development value, the landowner has to effectively pay for the necessary infrastructure which is required to service that land. And the landowner also has to pay for affordable housing. So the landowner is not getting, as it were, something for nothing. Uh, and so I think the, the, the sort of premise of land value capture is wrong. I think what's happened is that we've had years of uh, repeated urban extensions up and down the country, which have now become so politically unpopular and so toxic in some areas that the politicians are now turning increasingly, egged on by various governments of all political persuasions, to garden villages uh, and new towns. And I think that the funding of that and the need for public funding to play a role in delivering these new garden communities and towns is in a mess. And I think that the, uh, there is a need to underpin and, and better understand the infrastructure requirements of these large schemes, because as, as we've debated on this show, and we'll no doubt return, return to this, the viability of these new settlements uh, is extremely complex. And I don't think the current system is fit for purpose, but I do not think that land value capture is the answer. Thanks, Mary. Um, Chris, what do you think? Well, I, I completely and utterly agree. Mary and I like a tussle or two about a bit of land value and um, uh, Mary absolutely uh, nails it down there. It, it is a major issue for new settlements. I mean, I think new settlements are going to be something we'll be discussing in season eight and maybe even season 20 because they're, they're the biggest thing that's happening in planning and it's a major, major issue, uh, this whole issue of land value and we're very lucky to have um, the, uh, to have Nigel, the real Paul Tucker, no that's wrong, um, to have Nigel uh, here with us. Now I've had a look this week at uh, another one of the papers from uh, Planning and You, and uh, there's a paper in there of, about this very topic that uh, Mary's been talking about, land value capture, and um, I agree it's a, it's a phrase that's got a currency, well let's tap into the landowners, they must be making loads of money, and um, Charles Dugdale who wrote this article uh, said that the valuation office did some work for the government and uh, they worked out that the across England as a whole uh, the average value of land with planning permission was £790,000 but there was a footnote and that footnote read the purpose of these values is to to use in appraisal land projects from a social perspective in line with green book principles that's a surveyor's uh, green book the values here assume nil affordable housing provision in order to give pure residential land value rather than market land value. And also, it didn't mention the minor issue of infrastructure costs. 
So the public has this perception that you get a million pounds or 800,000 pounds an acre, when in fact nearly all of that money disappears in the cost of uh, the infrastructure and the profit is severely reduced because of the affordable housing. Land value capture happens already on a massive scale. So if anybody comes along, Dominic Cummings, and thinks you've got some better idea and you'll be able to tap into this, you won't. If you tamper with this, you'll probably make it worse. The development industry is already, or the landowners in particular, Nigel would correct me, that the landowners are already paying very significant amounts of money. Um, and the answer is not to move to some other system, but to recognize just how generous it is. The other thing that Charles Dugdale raises, and I don't know if we'll come on to this, Nigel, if you agree with this, is there's quite a disparity between um, what people are paying per, per sill and what the actual real costs of a new settlement are, which are about 10 times the cost. And so Mary is absolutely spot on, as ever, that you need to, we need to have a new approach for these new settlements. And we need to have a very, very clear view about how much government is going to support these, because I think it requires government support. But I don't know what you think, Nigel. Well, it, it, it all comes back to the same issue, is what is an appropriate return to the landowner? Forgetting anything else, um, and forgetting how you capture land in inverted ca capture land value in inverted commas what is by the public granting a planning consent which on the face of it increases the value of their land substantially to the sort of numbers that you're talking about um, before you take into account infrastructure 106 and all affordable housing costs etc if you then strip all of that out what realistically should is it fair is it reasonable that the landowner should receive and that of course is before any other form of corporate tax any other form of uh, taxation comes into account uh, capital gains tax or whatever it is depending on whatever mode that land is held so you've got to realize that the poor old landowner who is the forgotten party in this is being significantly taxed and i have been saying for some time which is rather um, non-pc that all 106 obligations, all sale, um, affordable housing is simply a tax on the landowner. And if one actually gets to that point, where is it that having been taxed through his planning obligations and the other costs that he has to meet and then be taxed again, where realistically should a landowner sit? What should he be get? What should he be getting? Which then comes back to the other strand of that, the benchmark land value in viability assessments, but that's a, sub, that's a related but separate subject. Thanks Nigel. Um, before we go on to our discussion, Andrew Kitchener has, I think you know, um, and I know very well, uh, he's asked, I think, a very personal question, which is, if we did move to a, a system of land value capture, would this be, could be a bit like SIL, that to start off it would be sold as no double dipping and there'd be legislation, this is the one bite of the pie, to mix my metaphors, and then the dam would break uh, and it would be possible to, to have multiple, for the, the state in its various forms, have multiple bites. Do you think that's, um, does any of you think that's likely to be what will happen? Or yeah. should, should it happen or should it be um, land value capture and nothing else? Well, the difficulty, the difficulty, Charlie, is where do you start and where do you finish, isn't it? 
because site-specific site obligations obviously should be related to the actual site itself and that the landowner should pay for those site-specific obligations. And then immediately you get into the grey area of where is it actually not site-specific, where is it actually an improvement which is beneficial to other things, and that's where the complications come. So Andrew is right that you've got this potential grey area where double dipping may be considered inappropriate. Chris, I think you want to say something, do you? Was it Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think it's inevitable. I think the, the point that's being raised is inevitable. You have this sort of red line and this is the amount. And then what happens when you can't deliver a school or you can't deliver a piece of infrastructure, then the developers will be asked to provide that. Otherwise, they'll have to sit and wait until some other HIF funding or some government funding comes forward. I mean, the current, my own view is the current system works pretty well and is pretty generous to the public. Um, I really don't see why people are seizing on this and thinking it's some panacea. Can, can, I, say, can I say why I think that, that, that people are seizing on it, Chris? And I, I come at it from a very similar place for you for obvious reasons, but I have some sympathy for um, the local residents who can't get into the GPs for two and a half weeks, whose school uh, isn't the one where the kids go, they have to go three or four uh, miles up the road, and that the roads are clogged up on a morning that then see that there's another development that's coming forward, which will impact on that. I, I have some sympathy with that situation, not least because well, I'm in that situation. So I, I have personally sympathised with that. But what I think is, is completely wrong-headed is to view the planning system as, as you put it, the panacea, although you pronounced it in a slightly odd way, uh, the panacea <laughs> to, to this, this position. Um, the planning system isn't the panacea. I came into this job to be a planning lawyer, not a taxation lawyer. When I get a SIL question, I've got to plough through this Byzantine set of regulations and I then look at ridiculous triggers as to when landowners uh, have or haven't sent the exemptions in time, which are then operated by people at authorities that equally um, are no doubt very, very capable people in general terms, but they, they're not taxation lawyers. I'm not a taxation lawyer. It, uh, they're not taxation lawyers. And yet we're being asked to deal with a taxation system. Let's be honest about this. Let's invest in infrastructure properly in the country and let's tax properly not let's pretend by using euphemisms like land value capture. And, and can we have you say do it, you know, you're not sort of, you're not suggesting it shouldn't be done, but, it, but you're saying is let's, let's call a spade a spade. Let's mm. do it properly through a taxation yeah. system. Can I say I was going to make a... Sorry, Mary. Yeah, can, can we also just come back to this point that um, you need to have uh, some public funding to get some of these uh, large schemes going. And local authorities, by and large, don't want to act as the banker. Uh, and you sometimes need a sort of banker uh, in these situations. And I think there is a disconnection between the Treasury, who seem to have all the cash and come up with the, uh, the HIF funding and the city growth and the, the, the road funding deals, um, and the planning authorities, who are expected to demonstrate with not very, uh, uh, adequate resources how these garden villages are viable absolutely can i just say i was going to express a view but as i'm apparently a marxist i'm going to keep quiet let's move on uh, or segue to our um, our guests um, slot with with nigel which uh, i'm going to start by asking a few questions of you nigel it, it may be that you've covered this first question um, already, at least to, to a large degree, but um, 
for the avoidance of debt, we, we're a very broad, broad church in, in terms of our audience. And there's lots of people who uh, are, are, are valuers, um, RICS members and fellows, um, and um, clients, etc. cetera, um, developers, promoters. Um, but for those who, who don't have the same grasp of development economics as, as you do, um, can you just give us a kind of a lowdown in a few short sentences of the key issues in development economics that, that influence um, viability appraisal, influence consideration about changing the system, etc.? Well, in, in very simple terms, um, development, development economics are actually quite, quite easy, really. On the one side of the page, if you can think about it, the value that is generated from a scheme is the value of the completed let's say resident let's keep this just in residential terms it is the value of the houses that uh, are constructed by the developer on the left hand side of the page set against those revenue stream those revenue streams are the costs the cost that then the developer incurs so those are the physical costs of his bricks and his timber etc there is profit and don't forget that's already there the developer's profit is part of his cost base so when i'm told that um, anything to do with land value is to do with developers profit that's wrong um, the developer's profit is already embedded in the system and then there in, in terms of his cost there's finance and all the other relevant issues and out at the bottom pops the land value and that's the the variable um, in the whole equation. And so that's why all everything to do with development economics in reality is all to do with land value because if you haven't got the raw resource of the land because other than exceptional circumstances we don't make land anymore, um, you've got to have the land. Without the land the whole thing doesn't work but of course from a developer's point of view he can buy timber, he can buy bricks etc on in other places. So in simple terms, and this is a bit more than two or three sentences, development economics is all about sales revenue on one side, cost of the, on the other, leaving a residual land value at the bottom. Thanks. Thanks. That's, that's, that's very helpful, Nigel. I'm going to talk next about, or ask a question next about plan making, and I'll come to decision taking uh, after that. Um, viability concerns that have now been the undoing it, it, within the lifetime of, of, of this show. Of, of more than one local plan, most recently North Essex, um, particularly in relation to garden communities. Um, and in North Essex, the inspector thought a 40% contingency was appropriate given the, the degree of risk effective, effective 40% margin of error. Um, do you think that the current approach to assessing viability of local plans, particularly those for uh, that contain ambitious um, schemes which, which will, will carry on for many years beyond the plan period is that approach um, tenable and is there some other way of doing it to um, to assess viability in, in some shape or degree um, but not in the way that, that has caused these problems for plans um, in multiple locations well the first thing is to consider what do you mean by the word viable mm. because obviously unless you agree what the definition of viability is it's it's a a difficult equation but let's assume viable means viable to the landowner mm. because again I come back to all of these appraisals whether it's a high level local plan uh, um, assessment or indeed an individual site um, the developer's profit is normally embedded into the into the scheme now you can 
you can do it the other way and have a fixed land value to see whether it is viable to the developer in that the profit to the developer uh, comes out at an acceptable margin. But normally doing it the other way, your definition of viability is, is it viable to the landowner? So in terms of these large schemes, the appraisal approach is broadly similar on all bases, i.e. its revenue and cost. The difficulty with appraising at that level is the huge elements that are unknown. Um, and once you start, obviously from a revenue point of view, the unknowns are how many dwellings, what type, mm. what's the level of affordable housing, etc. All of those are unknowns. Um, now obviously it could be in affordable housing terms, policy compliant, that would be our starting point. And then on the cost side, what are the costs of the infrastructure? But then what infrastructure is needed and what infrastructure is needed depends on how many houses you have and what are the ancillary um, development requirements. So the difficulty at a high level is knowing how much unknown you can realistically um, assess as being reasonable. Now in the, in the North Essex um, uh, decision, the inspector's decision there, now that's why he had this very large contingency, the 40% contingency, which wasn't an unreasonable, in my opinion, approach to it, was recognising that he had that difficulty. Now, one of the interesting things in that decision is an absolutely fundamental point, which doesn't come out in the decision itself, when he said that he had parameters of acceptable viability, um, 50,000 per acre thought might be possible, and most people would sell at 100,000 pounds per acre. That was his view on, on um, what would be an acceptable return to the landowner. But the point that he doesn't say in his decision, and it may be specifically, it came out in all the representations, etc. Was he talking about gross acres or was he talking about net acres? Because there was a huge, there could be a huge difference um, in the figures. And, and it, unless you knew those numbers, unless you knew that definition, is it gross or net? Because if it was gross, did it include all of the ancillary open space? And we'll come to a matter which is, I know, dear to Mary's heart. Did it include, I don't know whether it was relevant there, but if it included SANGs, there could have been substantial SANGs. Now, was all of that at the same land value? So was it, was it all on gross or was it net? Now, if it comes to being net acres, there isn't an agreed definition of what, not, what, not, what net developable acres means anyway, despite the RICS recently trying to define that. So that issue alone shows how difficult it is at such a high level. And one, one solution, I suspect, Mary, what you're thinking, what you're, you'd say is, is it's not so much a question of, of tweaking the approach to financial viability appraisal, but tweaking the policy requirements, i.e. Policy, policy should be more prepared to take a, to, to take a risk on ambitious schemes. Otherwise, never I, get anything done. I, I don't think we have that many uh, really good examples, uh, policy examples, of large complex areas of land with multiple land ownerships coming forward where policy somehow uh, gets to grips with what usually happens behind closed doors where landowners come to an equalization agreement and how how does sort of policy equalize and i think that's one of the issues that uh inspector hunt was trying to sort of grapple with uh in relation to the primary school 
Yeah, no. and I can't help but think it sort of applies to other concepts too. That sometimes for really ambitious, innovative things, the standard approach, the same sorts of approach to viability as applied in other contexts are unhelpful. I mean, there's, there are so many examples of innovation in history. I mean, would the Industrial Revolution have happened if, if <laughs> proved advanced it was going to be a success? You know, sometimes you have to take a chance on things, an informed yeah. chance. That's my own view, for what it's worth. Um, but we're more interested in your views, Nigel. And next question, um, decision-taking. So moving from the planned stage to the decision-taking stage. Um, do you think that the 2018-2019 um, framework, or really more specifically the, P the PPG, the company that, that uh, revised framework, um, changing national policy and guidance on viability appraisal, supplemented then by the RICS professional statement and the um, still-awaited final guidance note, do you think that those documents fix a previously broken system or do they go too far? Are they overkill or are they an inadequate sticking class that doesn't really address the fundamental issues um, that uh, prevailed before those uh, changes? Well, the difficulty is that, um, and I, I t I'm, I'm prepared to take some of the blame, if we start off with the original RICS um, viability uh, guidance note, that didn't really address the problem, in my view. It rather skirted around the edges of the critical issue of what is an appropriate benchmark land value. Um, subsequently, obviously, there's been five years of wrangling and numerous appeals taking up individual parts of the guidance where it suited them. But the guidance itself was lacking. The committee that wrote it, it was a committee um, decision on various things and being part of that committee we simply couldn't agree on some of the fundamentals. The new PPG now has rather wrestled that away from um, our august organisation and the existing use value plus a premium is fine. I have no problem with that because from a landowner's point of view he starts off with his existing use value, he doesn't have to get out of bed, he doesn't have to apply for planning permission, it's perfectly reasonable he should start and receive the value that he puts in his existing use value. That's not a reasonable starting point. It then talks about plus a premium, but it doesn't define in true sense what the premium is, and it's now suggesting that it's a premium that is going to be uh, decided by the determining authority, by the local planning authority. Well, with the greatest respect to the planning authorities, they don't know either. So we've come back to the overriding issue is what should be the appropriate landowner return. And I don't think that the PPG has properly addressed that point and we will still be wrangling about it um, unless we come up with an, a very objective test. And I would suggest a simple objective test. I'm afraid we're in for a further round of wrangling over what that premium is going to be. It sort of collapses all that, all these points collapse down to the same basic point on your analysis, don't they? Oh, inevitably, it all comes down to benchmark land value. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, I, I did have a further question on the sort of the COVID so-called, I hate the term easements because that has a sort of legal connotation, but the government's um, various relaxations of relation to SIL and 106 um, to try and stop stall sites, sites in relation to um, COVID. But I'm going to pause that um, given the time and, and ask other panellists, first of all, if they've got any questions. And then if we have time, we'll come back to COVID. And if we don't, um, we won't. Um, Sasha, um, you're first up. Well, 
I'm 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 fine to move on because I want to say something on nudge. In the interest of time, I'll forego my You're question. Desperate to talk about West Ferry again, aren't you, <laughs> uh, Mary? I was just simply going to ask: When are we going to get this new Rick's guidance, and what's it going to you know what's what's it going to say? Oh well, yeah, shortly I think is the answer to that. And what's it going to say? Um, well, is it going to tell us about the premium point? Is it going to give it? A, is it going to help? I personally. It is. It is. It has been drafted by more committee members, and my own personal view is it is more complicated and less certain. Oh, thank you very much, Paul. Yeah, I, I. I think I'm now starting to get inspired after drinking 40 minutes worth of Thatcher's rosé, and I'm starting to rebel. Um, so the old lefty in me is going to ask you this question, uh, uh, Nigel. Um, uh, so why is any of this this necessary when we operate a perfectly serviceable taxation system? What utility is there in pi piling covert tax on the operation of an already overly complex planning system, except to pretend to a party conference that we operate a low tax economy? Well, I have a, I have a, as I am your namesake, I have a certain amount of, of um, um, a certain agreement with that. It would be much simpler, in my view, that we abandon. Um, great swathes of 106 obligations um, and other taxes and just made this actually a simple development gains tax because we go back to where we started this conversation 106 obligations are essentially a tax on the landowner so why not be absolutely upfront about it it's in, in my view it's a bit like the television license why have a television license it's a tax um, why don't we just simplify matters and be open and upfront about it Thank you, Tavarich. Yes. <laughs> well, I tell you what, Nigel taught me everything I know about viability. And for him to say, look, let's just scrap all that and let's just say, let's have a development tax. Uh, wow. I mean, uh, that is an extraordinary statement and really powerful. And I hope members of government are listening. I'm not going to ask my question. I'm going to ask Heather Pugh's question. Uh, Heather says, viability is only ever a snapshot in time, Nigel producing a viability appraisal for a project, a garden village that's going to take 25 years to deliver. Is it reasonable to use viability at the start of the process for something of this scale? Well, the answer to that is, I don't know what else you can do because forward guessing on revenues and costs make it very difficult. And you can, you can only do it as a snapshot in time. I, I recognize it has deficiencies, but I don't really see there's any alternative. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Um, Nigel, thank you so much for that um, really valuable insight. Um, I, I've certainly learned a huge amount from, from what you said today and, and indeed from what we, we discussed yesterday in our rehearsal session. So thank you very much. Um, stay with us because uh, we've got a few further things to discuss and, and the first, first of which is the champion of the week. And, and Paul, who's your champion? Um, well, uh, interesting question. And the one that I'd selected uh, up until lunchtime today was Lancaster. Uh, that's partly self-interest because I acted for Lancaster in their local plan examination uh, last year and uh, the inspector came back, uh, report published um, uh, over the last four or five days, endorsing the plan with a few changes, which includes a huge opportunity area south of Lancaster, uh, fit for a garden community, which is what it's intended to be, the Bale Rig uh, Garden Community. And the plan there is it's endorsing the part one plan, bring the detail forward in the area action plan. I suspect that may be a good plan for moving these things forward because you then sidestep the viability arguments that did down the North Essex authorities. Mm -hmm. Well, that was what I was going to say. 
Um, what I'm actually going to add is, thank goodness government have started to listen to this show, plainly. I'm assuming that's what all the anonymous elements are, uh, because the business and planning bill uh, has now been published, uh, which has a variety of different reforms within it, which we'll be talking about next week. Uh, Mary's done nothing but, it, but ingest it. Uh, and within it, we have a variety of exciting things, lengthening the time for construction, um, lengthening the time for planning permissions at last, thank you, but no sign of a revocation of section 735, no doubt that will be an amendment, uh, and also uh, giving power, things for power to have hybrid inquiries. Uh, all good stuff, just a shame it's three months too late. So champion of the week, the government. Thanks, Paul. That hybrid inquiries point buried in there is, is really um, very interesting and very useful. Uh, and more of that going forward. Um, now, um, nudge of the week. Um, Sasha? <laughs> As I said, <laughs> we know what you're going to talk about. <laughs> surprise, surprise. You do know what I'm going to talk about because I'm going to say to our, our observers, those watching, it, all of you, I recommend strongly that if you do anything over the weekend, go and download the release of the 132 pages from the ministry relating to Westbury because it is a fascinating insight putting aside where one sits on the debate it's a fascinating insight which into what happens when the Secretary of State is considering his decision or her decision into section 78s and 77s so I think I recommend that and my nudge of the week just quickly is I've been asked about six different journalists have asked me, do I think the Secretary of State should resign? Of course, I haven't got a view on that. I'm a mere lawyer, not a politician. I have no view on that. But what I do want to say is I think all of us who work in the planning system want to have a system which is transparent, fair, objective, and operates in a reasonable way to everybody involved. And I want everyone to consider those matters. Uh, Nigel's got a very good Calypso cricket. Well done. <laughs> Sasha puts a degree of content context on the on the consent of judgment because it seems to me that if if the case had proceeded they would have under the duty of candor had to and if they had produced it uh, you you might well have decided you would have wanted to apply to cross-examine the Secretary of State well there's that and there's also we mustn't forget Charlie that what we've got I think it's about 60% redacted, which is greatly unfortunate, with the covering letter saying Secretary of State places the highest emphasis on transparency. Well, it's a bit ironic when about, as I say, 60% of what is produced doesn't, is redacted. But all I, the point I wanted to say, it's for everyone, I want you to consider all of us who work in planning, we all have a serious, serious requirement for the system to be fair and act within the law and all of you consider what is in those 130 pages and reach your own judgment. Can I just say, just jump in there, I've been here many times seeking the disclosure and I've had the same problem Sasha, I've had pages and pages of redacted material, either it's disclosure or it's not. I got yeah, fab fabulous disclosure and challenging the written ministerial statement on neighbourhood plans from, um, God bless him, uh, Mr Justice Gilbar, and he was having none of it. He asked them to disclose it, and about 60% was redacted. How are you meant to know what the real transparent answer was if they redact so much of the information? Mm -hmm. Very good point. Now, um, what's coming up next week and, and beyond? Uh, Mary, you're going to tell us that. Well, next week, can I say that we are delighted to have uh, Victoria Hills as our guest. She's the CEO of the Royal Town Planning Institute and 
Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, her coming on the show next week. Some of you may have seen her letter in the Times yesterday, uh, where she was responding to calls for uh, zoning uh, and deprecating the idea that the uh, zoning was the answer to our problems. And actually, and I'm absolutely with her on this, what she was calling for was more joined up thinking in relation to infrastructure. So that's one thing. Um, maybe, maybe, Charlie, maybe you're, you're going to get a judgment in your uh, in your little <laughs> north. I know that's a topic which is uh, near and dear to you. There's also a recent Secretary of State decision uh, on a waste facility where the inspector uh, and the Secretary of State, the inspector recommended no, the Secretary of State uh, dismissed the appeal. So that's uh, another possibility. So uh, plus, of course, the business and planning bill and the guidance, uh, some of which is in draft, some of which is in final form. We've got some new permitted development rights today. We've got lots to talk about next week. Thanks, Mary. I should add, I, I hope I can be with you next week. My wife is, is now at the stage where she is um, about to give birth to our, our second child. So if I'm not with you next week, please don't take offence. I am coming back. I, I think I will be next week, but probably not the week after. But um, Charlie, Charlie, really important. Uh, we've got a message from Sarah Barker. She just asked uh, Sasha, uh, uh, somebody has asked Sasha, have you got Gendrix mobile number? <laughs> actually, there's, there's one other thing that we need to talk about as well before we go, which is Sasha's hairstyle has had a, a significant um, refinement. Uh, the badger is no more. What a great... Charlie, I, I was very restrained and I was going to ask you when you declared about your wife, I was going to ask who the father was, but I restrained myself. <laughs> 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 Final question. <laughs> Final question. Uh, Nigel. Nigel. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm too strong. Hold on, Charlie. Charlie, Chris has got a question. Nigel, are you going to run your horse? You've got a new horse. Are you going to run it at Cheltenham next year? Um, well, the answer to the first question have I got a new horse? Yes. Am I going to run at Cheltenham next year? Very unlikely, but um, she's only four, so she won't be ready. Fingers crossed couple of years time and is she called land value capture <laughs> no 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 paul no no the previous one the previous one was called drinks interval <laughs> that's a great idea and before we go charlie i think we need to have a toast to our 10th episode yes we made it possible actually and can we uh, also thank you for your audience without you have anything so thank you and Thank you, Nigel, for, for um, blessing no us with um, distinguished presence there this week. Um, as Mary's indicator, we'll, we'll certainly everybody apart from me, and hopefully I will be here next this time next week. Uh, don't forget the NHS donations. Please do follow our LinkedIn page if you haven't already. And see you next week. Have a great weekend and enjoy the lovely weather tonight. Cheers. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays.